The funny thing about privacy is that it's none of your business. This is my conversation with Jules Polonetsky. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repman. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Jules Polonetsky. Jules is the CEO of the Future of Privacy Forum. It's a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit organization, and as you can imagine, it has a lot to do with privacy issues, uh, consumer protection, and Jules is extremely knowledgeable about this stuff. And if you look in the show notes, you'll see what his background is. But Jules, welcome to Truth Tastes Funny. Well, Hesh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Exciting times in privacy, so really great to talk to your audience. If you imagine we're going to have a conversation about some of this stuff, about privacy, about journalism, about defending defending the truth, trying to analyze the truth, trying to protect consumers, what, what's a handful of things that we should know what, what the hell they mean? Well, let's start with some of the technical things. Let's start with cookies, right? I think most people, even if they're not very technical, know that we're not talking about the cookies you munch on, but the... ID number that you are assigned when you visit a website by often third-party ad companies who track what you do across lots of sites and then work to target the ads you see. And so advocates who worry about privacy are worried that there are these detailed dossiers of everything you've done online that maybe are used to discriminate or just personalize things in a creepy way. Maybe the government gets it. Maybe foreign adversaries. So cookies chew up a lot of, oh, how about that? <laughs> cookies chew up a lot of uh, my time. Right. Certainly social media. I think we all get, obviously, that we say and do a lot online and it's creating lots of connections and lots of fun ways to discover content, but also, you know, creating all these challenges where we're spying on each other. And, you know, what are the problems that are being created? Is it misinformation, you know, spreading, or is it just, you know, people sort of, you know, preening and, you know, pleasing for the camera, but others are feeling depressed and left out, right? What does it do when our youth are growing up, living their words online? So cookies, social media, and then your mobile phone, right? That phone is a sensor. It's got location. It's got, you know, everything, right? The studies show that most of us sleep with our phone within reach. People have sex with their phone, like, you know, one, one, click away. And I saw a statistic yesterday from one of the companies that provides insurance, you know, if your phone gets damaged. And you know the biggest way that people's phones get damaged? They drop it in the toilet. We can't even put the thing, we can't put the stupid thing down long enough, you know, to pee because it's so critical to everything we do. But it also, it's got apps, it's got ad tech, it's got, you know, all kinds of companies who make up that ecosystem, who know an awful lot about us. So those are some of the things that take up. And then, of course, AI, whether or not the superpowers of machine learning and the kind of analysis that can be done really exacerbate this and make it 
easier to do bad things or frankly let companies learn stuff about us that that we don't even know that they can analyze and learn based on deep dives into everything we've done right right by the way i'm an optimist about this so wait till you talk to some of the pessimists who think there's a problem I, i actually think there's a path forward that can you know improve the world and add a lot to us so this is the i'm the positive person coming to the table working with the chief privacy officers of companies saying hey can we figure out how to do this right the critics, I think, are even going to give you a tougher gloom and doom story. And, you know, they have some good points. I think it's great that you have that attitude because the truth is, if we take away technology from the equation or if we try to curb the use of some of these apps or we just basically take away the rights to put things out there then we're all of a sudden dealing with the you know first amendment issues and we're dealing with are we becoming an authoritarian you know if we clamp down on everything then people don't have access to information and then you know they're getting neither the the good information nor the they're getting whatever the government gives them so 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 talk to me a little bit about ai what are your thoughts on on how that can be a a good thing or whether there's truth to the fears about justification for the fears about AI? You know, you, you read all the science fiction about the singularity, the time when machines might be smarter than people. And all I know is I, you know, on Friday night, you know, as you know, I'm Sabbath observant. So Friday night I, I come home and I say to my smart home device, can you tell me when sundown is for candle lighting. Um, and you think that this smart device would know, hey, he's clearly a Jewish guy because it knows everything about me and it knows that I'm Sabbath observant. So if I say, hey, what time is Shabbos? It would give me a smart answer. I can Google that, but yet my smart device, which is supposed to be this like billions of dollars of AI behind this, at, you know, global tech companies still says, I'm sorry, Jules, I can't answer that information. Go to Wikipedia or something. I'm like, so... On one hand, a lot of you know, a lot of what we expect from AI is so far away, right? I mean, that's such- because you programmed your AI as a shiksa. You have you can't say, listen, she's like, well, I don't really know, Jules. I've never met a Jew. There is a special Alexa skill. There's a Yenta setting. Well, there's a skill called Ask the Rabbi, and if you put that in. And you activate that, evidently it can answer lots of, you know, interesting questions. So I, I guess I've got to make sure that the Ask the Rabbi is turned on instead of the, uh, the Shiksa setting. So so, in, so instead of the AI being, apart from the AI being ignorant of, of Shabbos and, and not being helpful for candlelighting, which, which, by the way, since that's something that people who observe the Sabbath check every single week and it changes every week, and depending on the geographical location, it really is a difficult thing to find. You could always call my sister. My sister knows the candlelighting times. So, um, so, the, so let's let's move on to to another to another area, which is the the omniscience of other parties, third parties, when it comes to all of our information. You know, for people who don't use a lot of apps on their phone, or they have a very simple non-technical existence may not be as much of a worry, but we're trying to survive in business. We're trying to maintain contact with our friends all over the world. So we're using these apps. Is there a basic 
awareness that we need to have or a basic approach that kind of does the minimal amount of protection? Look, here's where we're falling down. Almost every democratic country in the world has a privacy or data protection law. Even non-democratic countries, China, passed a strong privacy law. Now, of course, their law says, hey, companies, you got to have limits on what you do. But of course, the government can get all your data, right? But they at least have a law that yeah, says yeah. that just because a company collects your data, it can't do anything it wants. And in the U.S., we have a couple of state laws. You lucky people in California have a new privacy law. The legislature couldn't pass it. You have those crazy ballot initiatives, right, where people can, like, get votes. And so yeah. they passed a privacy law. But the U.S. is having trouble because we just, you know, Congress is broken. It's hard for us to get stuff done. We don't have a baseline law. So we do really have a concern that when you share information with an app, hey, count how many steps I took or, you know, give me some mapping or, you know, the things we all need. What are they doing? There's a famous, you know, saying in, in technology policy that if you're not sure what the product is selling, you know, because it's free and you're like, well, then it's selling you. You are the product. If you're not right. sure what the product is, you are the product, right? And that's very true. We've built this system and it, it, hey, we all want free stuff, right? Like, why should we pay for anything? We want our music free. We want our content free. We want our apps free, right? And like, you know, people pay obviously for, for value, but we've gotten spoiled because there's so much ad supported stuff. And the reality is every time you see one of those ads, there is a multi-million dollar high speed auction going on behind the scenes where you and everything about you that different third parties can pin together, which is a lot of data, there's a, an auction being held and hundreds of companies are bidding for Hesh Rafoon. And they may know income, mortgage, where you live, how many kids. And, and again, what do they want? They simply want to know that you might be buying a lawnmower sometime soon, right? And, and they've got profiles yeah. of people who might be buying a lawnmower, right? Maybe you bought a new house, I don't know, whatever it is. And so the brightest minds of the generation have been put to work designing the fastest possible, speediest, you know, auctions. And most of us only notice when the ad seems a little too creepy, right? Hey, I was just talking about this and now I'm seeing this ad. Or, oh, I was yeah. looking at the red shoes on this site and now they're, you know, chasing me around the internet. And we're like, huh, I guess there's something kind of going on behind there. So on one hand, it's useful, right? Like sites make money, stuff's free. But on the other hand, we've built this complex that has so much data, doesn't have a lot of accountability, and we really do need some laws to kind of put it in place so that we don't have to worry that maybe the data isn't going to the wrong places. And by the way, today with the concerns about, you know, reproductive freedom, we've got attorneys general who are like, hmm, uh, what about wellness apps? You know, how can I learn which women might be considering terminating a pregnancy, right? Are, are people tracking that information? Of course they are in apps. Loca we all have location on on our device because it's useful. So if I go to a, an abortion clinic, that data is there. And we already have some of the more conservative attorney generals who are real, you know, fervently looking to deal with uh, tracking down people who might be having or facilitating abortions. And the concern is that they will go. Some of them have already started going after this data. So we really do need a law that limits that, that protects it, that forces companies to delete it so that we can go about our business doing what we want, sharing what we want without worrying that harmful things will come to us. Is it, is it easy enough to determine who the bad guys are 
in privacy or information? Is that something that can be figured out? Well, look, here's the problem. They're real bad guys, and we all might agree that, you know, Russians looking to target members of Congress with ads that, hey, the Ukraine battle is a wonderful freedom fight, like, or, or buying ads and trying to create, you know, misinformation and, and develop confusion, like has happened, frankly, during the past election. Clearly, those are bad guys. And clearly, there are some actual evil actors that are putting in, you know, malvertising, bad code that might be actually doing harmful things. The bigger problem is that who are the other bad guys? There, there are some folks who will tell you that big tech has too much data and too much power, and so that Facebook and Google are the bad guys. There are some people who will say, hey, I all this profiling, it's not fair. I don't want it. You know, pay me for my data. And so they think ad tech are the bad guys. Other folks say, "What? The, hey, that's how I make my money, and that's why I can publish my blog for free. So we need a consensus that says, this is legit. This is too much. It's okay to have an ad. It's okay maybe to measure and count how many times the ad showed up and maybe give some reporting. Like, here's, you know, your blue ad on Yahoo is more effective than your ad on this podcast. But no, brokering and selling it, maybe that's not okay. Or, hey, it's okay for me to label you sports lover or guy who might buy a lawnmower, but let's not label anybody like somebody seeking an abortion, right? Things that could be used to help them. But we don't have consensus about this, and that's why we don't have any laws the way other countries just, they drew some lines. They said, sensitive data, sorry, you can't collect it without really getting express permission. And here we're still kind of twiddling and arguing and debating. Well, it's a real problem here in the United States because politically, at least, there's so much division and so much difference of opinion. So there's there's these two sides of everything, and it doesn't even matter what the what the. I'm not even breaking it down in terms of the numbers of citizens. I'm breaking it down in terms of the people who are in power. And so the power is divided in such a way. It's probably a better point than opinion. You know, power at the end of the day is really what this is all about. Do big companies have too much power over us? Does the government, when it uses, you know, tracking and spying, you know, are they keeping us safe or do they have too much power? Again, if it's in the hands of some local enforcement person who's going to use their political agenda. At the end of the day, privacy is about power, right? Because knowledge is about power. The more data you have, the bigger decisions you can make. And are there powerful institutions, big government? Because most of us don't want to hide, right? We want privacy, but we, most of us, we, we want to connect, right? We want to deal with our family, friends, relatives. Yeah, even, you know, we're, we're, we're not accidentally on Facebook, right? We're, we're social, you know, creatures. Most of us don't want to live on a mountain, like, and, you know, hide from everybody. Some of them do, and, and they think the black helicopters are coming, and, like, let them move to the mountains there, and let, let them get off the grid. Uh, but most of us want to be uh, connected, but we want a fair, we just want fair treatment, right? Like, you can have my data, like, give me some value for it. You want to give me a coupon, give me a discount, because you want to actually know something about the people that are buying your product. Okay, I'm for it. But what's the limit? There's a famous philosopher named Helen Nissenbaum, and she writes about privacy as being all about context. So let me give you an example, right? If I'm naked, well, I don't know. If I'm in my doctor's office and he's, he's you know, checking me out, I'm like, yeah, that's normal. If I'm in a bathing suit and I'm on the beach, that's normal. But if I'm in the middle of the street, well, wait a second, that's... <laughs> 
that's very discomforting, even though it might be the same, you know, person. Um, the context really matters. If I'm naked in bed with a loved one, I'm not like, oh my God, I'm naked. I'm like, yeah, I'm very happy to be naked. So it's all about, it, it, you know, it, it's not about the data or whether you're naked. It's about, is this okay? Now, somebody can treat that wrong, right? Somebody can have a picture of you and they're a loved one and then they go ahead and they share it, right? So they've violated that context. So it's all about context, respect for context, and then power. How do the big players who have this data, do they treat you fairly? And privacy law is sort of a tool to say, nah, 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 just because you have my location to do something useful for me doesn't mean you can do it in something that's harmful to me. Now let's talk about human rights a little bit because privacy is one is one part of it. So is so you know so the right to information in terms of journalism. What are some of your thoughts on how the truth or lack thereof or confusion about thereof influences our ability to even protect ourselves or make good judgments? Yeah, so let's talk about human rights for a second, right? The point of data protection, right? Privacy is really this, you know, hey, it, 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 is my data being used only in the context that I expect, right? Data protection law is, is the set of tools that let me know when and how to evaluate when and where data should go or when other people's rights might trump it, right? So we care about journalism. And so there are times where I might like something to be private, but guess what? I'm a public figure, and if I'm doing something that the public should know about that says I'm not fit for office or I'm a celebrity or the like, the, there, there is a public right that might trump my privacy right. The government might have to know about how COVID is spreading, and so I might not want to tell anybody, but you know what? I was in a place and I may have you know, contacted many people, whatever it is, monkeypox, this disease, that disease. There are times where, or there's an emergency, right? We, we got to know who survived. So there are all sorts of instances where other rights might trump and data protection law gives us some balance. Now, let's talk about misinformation and the fact that we all can publish stuff now and we don't have the same editorial control, which again, was a lot of power, right? I mean, there were truths that today we look back and we say, hey, that president was in a wheelchair. Like maybe we had a right to know that. Or, right. you know, we, we or, or the reporters who wrote were the ones who had special access because they were pals and drinking buddies with this powerful person or that and so on and so forth, right? There were publicists who could, you know, create a version of, of truth. So, you know, there's always been a bit of a problem that, gatekeepers were the ones who perhaps decided on the truth. The problem and the advantage we have today is, well, guess what? Everybody can say, you know, their piece and can find an audience on social media. So that's been awesome, right? There are people who've been able to develop a brand, do investigative stuff and so forth, but we also don't have any gatekeepers and we want someone to be the gatekeeper, right? Facebook, stop that misinformation. Government, someone ought to do something about it. And around the world, governments are stepping in and saying, we're going to decide what's true and what's not, and we're going to order companies to take it down. Now, that's a little bit scary as well, right? <laughs> Hungary is dealing with a complaint today against Netflix uh, because uh, there's a law there against depicting homosexual activity, let alone to kids. 
and there's evidently a Netflix show where two girls kiss. And so there's a legal complaint filed against Netflix, and the Hungarian media regulator, you know, is going to decide this. So the question is, who should be the arbiter? Do we trust the government to be the arbiter? Well, that's, that's putting a lot of power, right? I mean, if, if you yeah. weren't a fan of Trump and the government under Trump was going to decide, you know, things like lies about an election or other kinds of misinformation, well, a lot of Democrats wouldn't be too happy, with, you know, with that. On the other hand, a lot of Republicans think that Facebook and Google are censoring them because they're taking down stuff that people are reporting as biased or bigoted. So who is the trusted center player that right. can say, hey, this is COVID misinformation. This is, you know, misinformation about Russia. We're, we, we have a low trust society. I was just in Singapore and they've got a government agency, which was very, you know, people were criticizing it when they set it up and they've been sort of cautious and careful. And they, the people trust that the government is gonna shut down stuff that is really you know, harmful, that might incite violence, because there's a, a little more collective trust in you know, the government over there. But you know, they're not a pure democracy. So we've created a monster. It's also the most useful thing ever, but it clearly has some downsides that we haven't figured out a way to deal with. You know, Facebook has an oversight board that they created. They put a bunch of money and they created this independent entity and they hired all these sort of brilliant people around the world and they said, you will determine whether or not we've done the right thing. And, you know, in some cases it seems to be working. In others, you know, people are criti criticizing it. But I think we're going to be debating this for quite a long time because it's not clear who should be the truth police in our society. A lot of it also comes down to intent. Like we, we think of Facebook and Meta and, you know, what, from what little I've seen of Mark Zuckerberg, you know, I, the, the, the sense I get from him is that, you know, he's kind of a schmuck. That's, that's my, that's, you know, as a, as a, as a citizen and purveyor of his many apps and treats, you know, I, I'm no one to talk, but the fact is, you know, it just seems to me like this is a guy who doesn't care. You know, he doesn't care about anything but money or power. So, you know, sometimes you can, you can, you know, use that when you're trying to figure things out, but it doesn't help in terms of laws because laws aren't supposed to be about a person's intent so much as it is about creating a safeguard about what's right and wrong in society. And it seems like there really isn't any way in such a divided society to set any standards anymore. Here's my view. And look, this was tailored. I, I oversaw all of these issues at AOL for a number of years. And, you know, it wasn't this scale, but it was the big scale at the time. And on any given day, you know, my team was being accused of being, you know, pro this, pro that, anti this, anti that, because we had a pretty heavy hand. We wanted to be family friendly. We didn't want anything controversial. We didn't take political ads. We didn't take controversial issue ads, but it, it would get complicated. Here's what, here's what happened once. We wouldn't allow terms like dyke or kike to be used because those were bad and offensive words. And then people started coming along and saying, hey, my screen name is uh, Proud Dyke at AOL because I'm, I'm reclaiming that term and I'm using yeah. it in a positive self-referential manner, right? There's a group called, or was, called Kikes on Bikes, right? Motorcycle biking Jews, right? And our staff, 
because our policy was, no, you can't use those sorts of, you know, slanderous words. We terminate those accounts. We'd like, you know, sanction people for saying that stuff. And then people started appealing to me. Hey, you're being bigoted against gays and lesbians because you're not letting, you're not letting the kikes and bikes, the dykes on bikes, the, the, the bikes at AOL. So I updated the policy and I said, okay, if a term is being used in what appears to be a positive self-referential manner, then it's acceptable. And we pushed out this policy to the moderators around the world, in the Philippines, in India, in, in Florida, and all hell broke loose because how do you evaluate that, right? You have to like read the paragraph before, read the paragraph after. What if that group spends all their time going into the evangelical Christian chat room and, right? We, we found that it was the right policy, but having humans implement it was really hard. And today, for Facebook and Google, the scale is so large that it's often automated AI. Now, can you imagine AI like reading some chat battle or some post on your Facebook page and trying to understand whether you're joking about the fact that Trump said this or being an in-group of people who can call themselves a particular term that if somebody else used it, it would be biased, right? The AI's, the AI can't tell me what time Shabbos candlelighting is. It's going to like evaluate heated con conversations. So I don't have the answers, but I know that having a very heavy handed like government sort of mandate there makes me worry. Can I really trust government to be the thought police on this? I think at the end of the day, we got to, you know, at, at AOL, we, we didn't do it perfectly, but we had a view. Now, people didn't like it. People said, hey, you're being too, you know, heavy handed. Well, you know what? I think the different platforms should have a view. They should stop saying, hey, we're, we're, we're not Democrat. We're not Republican. We're, we're just like here to like be fair and honest brokers. There, well, there is no fair and honest broker, right? Like people want to debate climate change. No, sorry, not here. Not we, we don't buy it. And if you think my platform is too left, too right, well, go, go ahead and go to your next platform, right? I mean, yeah. that's the deal. So I think you got to take a position, you got to have morality and you got to do your best to support, you know, democratic and social values. And, you know, you want to go say right wing things, well, go to Truth Social or go to, you know, some some place where you can, you know, chat about your conspiracy theories with, with those people. Well, that's a really good point, because the the ability to go somewhere and know what their point of view really is, is helpful. In other words, if someone says to me, you know, I, I hate you because you're Jewish or I hate you because whatever, then they're at least telling me where they where they stand. So where we get into the most trouble is where certain organizations, they could be news organizations, but they try to present the notion that they are, well, at the very least truthful. So in other words, someone can spew hate. And if it's really, really glaring or discriminatory, then it's obvious what they're saying. But when they are contorting and, and twisting the truth in service of their message, then it's a little harder. But I guess if you know it's a really radical site or it's uh, leaning this way or that way, you can take it with a, with a pound of salt, you know, and you can also, as a, as a more level, you know, individual, look at various sources 
and say, okay, I'm going to read, you know, the Wall Street Journal about this. I'm going to read the AP. I'm going to read. Now, do you have in your mind a short list of, in your opinion, news organizations that are the closest to being balanced or... Look, let me bring privacy into it for a moment as well. Do we want AI or companies monitoring everything we say or do to flag, like... I guess if I post something in a big public forum and it's, you know, not true and it's biased, I understand that they got some rules and they say, hey, you can't, you can't go into our climate change room and deny climate change, or you can't say bigoted things about people. We're going to kick you off. We're going to ban you. What if it's a small group, you know, small group on uh, WhatsApp of like a hundred of us and we're shooting the bull, we're, we're saying all kinds of trash, right? Do we want WhatsApp coming in there and saying... Whoa there, what are you saying? Boom, kick you out of the group. Well, if it's a very big group, we found that, frankly, people were fomenting, you know, WhatsApp used to have giant groups. And, you know, in some countries, people literally were like stirring up hate against different minority groups. And, it, and you know, it's accused to have led to, you know, real violence. So, you know, Facebook sort of put some some gaps on that. But, but what happens when it's 100 people, right? Or what about that shooter, right? He was on Discord and he was writing in a private journal about his, you know, crazy thoughts to shoot people. Do we want companies to keep us safe surveilling everything we write and do? Or schools, everyone is worried about school shooting and, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes kids that are, you know, at that school. So a lot of schools, we just did a report on this, a lot of schools are monitoring everything the kids say or do when it's on the school network or monitoring the kids' social media and flagging them. There's a database in Florida, for instance, that the governor created. You know, if a kid says something on social media and it gets captured by the monitoring program, you get reported to this database. Now, it gets reviewed before they do something about it, but how do you feel about the fact that your kid might have said something heated and now you're in, like, some government database as, like, a possible, you know, shooter just because they talked a bit, you know, wilder and maybe they're a kid with a disability that that talks one way or maybe they're a minority kid that's, you know, talking in what sounds like, you know, tougher language and they get flagged. So the, you know, when do we kind of want monitoring out of this because we have a right to, to think and we have a right to talk. And, and even though there might be some very dangerous situations, do we want the government listening in to everything we do even to protect the worst crimes, right? Do we want the government listening in to that smart home speaker that can't tell me when candles are to like to, to, to see whether I'm possibly committing some crimes, right? Right. We, we, we don't, right? We kind of, you know, we don't want that mental matrix level, you know, mind control. We, we got to have a zone of privacy where we can think sick, twisted, stupid things, you know, and... and even though it might be dangerous, should the government be, you know, listening to our thoughts? There are technologies today, you know, where you can control with your mind a cursor, where you can literally type in a password or or control a mouse. And that's great for people with disabilities or others that have, you know, different mobility issues. But we are only a few years away from being able to use our mind to control different technologies. And that's great. Maybe someone will be able to drive a car, right, who's a quadriplegic. But it also means that these sensors can detect our brain waves, right? That right. is bonkers. Elon Musk has a company, right, that's like putting these things that, you know, uh, Neuralink that wants to install this in our brains and is already installing it in pigs and that kind of thing. So do we want sensors listening for dangerous thoughts? So 
Well, I can think of a positive aspect to figuring out a way for our minds to control our mouths. But, <laughs> but, but, uh, but also I wonder on a personal level, like, is, is the bigger picture our, our quality as human beings? Is the, is the bigger picture, you know, here we're worrying about where our conversation even has kind of a frantic, you know, element to it because this is what we're, you know, it brings up all these issues, right? We're trying to figure out laws and, and figure out how much power the government should have. Really, if we could improve the, the, the I don't know if there's another word other than demeanor or perspective or... Human-centered design is the kind of latest effort to say to people who design technology to say, hey, stop calling your customers users. You know, users are like drug addicts, yeah. right? How do we recognize that this is not about just like selling me a product and then like getting me engaged to use it all day, right? Like, you know, I joked about the phones being dropped in toilets, but like we are all, I don't like to use the term, you know, addicted, but clearly, you know, our the services we use because they make money with ads or with engagement or views, they're designed to pull us in and to have us clicking on the, 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 the most outrageous headline. And that's not healthy for society, right? People are crossing the street, you know, looking at their phone, they're getting into accidents because they, like that, that last tweet is like something they really had to see so that they end up going through a, you know, a stoplight. So there are laws moving forward, mostly focused on teens, because that's always where it starts. Like, hey, we yeah. can't agree, but let's protect the kids, right? So California and Congress are advancing laws to say, hey, when you have a kid or a teen, you need to recognize that you need to design for their well-being. You need to make sure that you think about whether notifications should be default on or whether you know they will understand how much data they're giving up and you need to think about their quality of life, not just your profits. So that's a start, but taking that notion a bit further for frankly all of us, because it's not just the kids and teens that need the developers of technology saying, not simply how do I make the most money? Now here's the problem, we're in a capitalist society, right? Well, you know, business is gonna be making the most money unless we put laws in place that say, no, it's your job to do what's best for most of your users, right? Now, we'll argue about what that is, right? How many notifications, you know, how, how do we balance the fact that these folks are trying to sell us something, get us to use the app, get us to, you know, use the phone with what we need for long-term quality of life, which maybe isn't like hooking us to like doom scroll all day, you know, because of the way these systems are set up. So. I think that's the optimistic place. And I think the other place to be optimistic is, what about the AI for me that might be helping me manage back the technology and the information, right? All this AI so far has been companies or technology to kind of manipulate me, to make money, to you know make the product work well. Where is the user side? You know what the technologists call your web browser? They call it a user agent. Well, I like that. Maybe don't call me a user, but still, you are my agent. <laughs> so a couple of academics have championed the notion that we need a duty of loyalty, right? Just the way your lawyer or your stockbroker, your financial advisor is supposed to be like, not, hey, let me put you in stocks where I can make the biggest markup and, you know, 
churn it and 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 make money off of you. They're supposed to be representing you. Well, maybe in some cases, argue professors Neil Richard and Woody Hartzog, maybe there should be a duty of loyalty so that you can trust that the technology is actually doing something for you. There's something to that. that that's really interesting. I, I think that the, those, both the human-centered design and the, and the duty of loyalty ideas are, are helpful and, are, and there's promise in it because what it, what it does is not vilify it's not vilification of someone's rights or, or limiting a right. It's really a responsibility. It's trying to create stuff for us. I think it would be great to have AI that was, that was centered to help us and had an, had a, an obligation, like almost a, a financial or you know, ethical obligation to, in a way, even to secrecy. You know, and of course, there's always going to be problems. There's going to be hacks. There's going to be evildoers. The the goal has never been, I think, in any reasonable society to do away with villainy. The idea is for us to find our purpose. You know, in uh, in in you, you've had a long career in this in this area. What what inspired you to go into it? When I was a state legislator in New York, I represented a fairly elderly senior citizen district uh, in uh, Brighton Beach and Coney Island. And people would come in to my office and they'd say, you know, Assemblyman, I heard you're really helpful. I'm embarrassed to talk about this to you, but I, I got to tell you what happened to me. My Herman passed away at the ripe age of 90 and he wasn't really so involved in his church or in the synagogue and all that. But when he died, he'd always said to me, I want to do it right. Have I want a traditional Jewish funeral. And I went into the neighborhood place and a fine gentleman took care of me. And of course, I, I didn't call around. I didn't shop around because who does that? Who calls up three funeral homes and says, hey, they'll do Herman for a thousand. Can you beat it? Right. I went into the neighborhood place, which advertises in the local religious newspapers that they respect our traditions. And I said, what's the right thing to do? And the fine young fellow there sold me a fancy casket and embalming and elaborate flowers. And then I, I, I couldn't imagine that I was going to spend so much money on a funeral, but I had to do right by my Herman. And then sure enough, at the funeral, my neighbor came over and said, Sadie, don't you know that that's not the right thing to do? A traditional Jewish funeral is a simple casket and, and really no flowers. And we certainly don't embalm. And I was embarrassed, but then I realized I was ripped off. And as I heard these stories and looked into it, it turns out that those local funeral homes, guess what? If you're a successful funeral homeowner, with great respect to the tradition, your kids don't want to be funeral homeowners. They're going to be a doctor or a lawyer and they're going to do something else because you gave them a leg up and they want to move up, right? Or move on. So there were two companies in the U.S. that had purchased thousands and thousands of local funeral homes, but kept the facade of being these community businesses, but actually was centrally moving the bodies around, running like kind of a McDonald's-style mass operation, but, whilst, but with this huge incentive to sort of sell, yet representing to people that they were doing the right thing for their tradition. So I began pressing for an antitrust investigation as 
these funeral chains started buying more and more homes and was successful in blocking some of the acquisitions. And so when I became the Consumer Affairs Commissioner for New York City, I had this notion. I said, you got to treat people fairly, even when you're selling them something and they're willingly paying for it. You got to say, wait a second, this is an older person. This is somebody under some stress. This is somebody who's not going to be an expert, right? Because most of us don't want to be experts. We want to go in, we, you know, we know, we know we should shop around, but you know, you got to take people. So I kind of was instilled with this treat people fairly and that the government and law enforcement and regulators like me could play a role. So later on, when the internet started becoming kind of a thing at DoubleClick and at AOL and other companies, I was sort of among the first of this class of professionals, lawyers and consumer protection folks who said, how do we translate these rules to be fair, to not be deceptive, to design technology? And as this profession grew, my pals and peers throughout the world were the people trying to figure this out. And it was hard and it was complicated and regulators didn't always understand how the technology worked. And so when I started the Future Privacy Forum, my goal was to bring together regulators, advocates, critics, media, and the companies to say, hey, this is tough, let's figure it out. We, we, business has got to make money. People want the products to work. There's ways we can use data to really improve work, to do research, to figure out where and what and what's going on with different diseases. But we got to have limits and rules if we want it to succeed. So I am an optimist because I think in the end of the day, there's a lot that we all do with data and technology that helps us, that improves society. We're doing this thing remote. We, we want to work remote. Well, that, that means a lot of things going on there to make that work smoothly. But maybe we don't want the bosses counting how many hours we're clicking on our keyboard and you know, on the other hand, we do want them caring about our, our mental wellness. Are we, are we too zoomed out, right? So how do we come up with rules that are human-centered, that let companies profit, but that have, at the end of the day, the well-being of people in society? Well, my takeaway from, from this conversation is that the reasonability that you apply and the patience with which you approach these issues is what we need more of. You know, the positivity... And it seems to come from the thoughtfulness and the, and the fact that, that, these, that, that the solutions aren't easy. And I think a lot of people, and we, we're all guilty of it in some aspect of our lives, being lazy and not wanting, to, not wanting to, to put in the effort. But I think these are tough issues. And the more advanced technology gets, the tougher the issues get. And often it seems like we're not growing at the same rate emotionally and intellectually as technology is growing. I talked about that with, the, with another guest recently. And we've gotten ahead, you know, we've gotten ahead of ourselves. And so in a lot of ways, we need to take some deep breaths, I guess, maybe, and, and try to think more about this. Yeah, we've got to meet people where they are, right? Who hasn't walked into a doctor's office and you get handed this, you know, HIPAA form to sign? If you don't sign it, they aren't going to treat you. You do sign it, but you don't read it. If you read it, you're like, what are they saying here? And do I, like, can I negotiate this? Well, no. So what are we accomplishing? We feel like we gave you some privacy because we gave you a legal notice that we told you to sign, right? No, we got to figure out, like, what's the fair deal, right? Yeah, of course, the doctor needs my data to treat me. And yeah, it's going to have to go to insurance to get the bill paid. But yeah, no, you want not to go sell it to have someone discriminate against me, period. Let's that be the rule. Don't, don't give me a piece of paper to sign because what in the world is that doing for me? Yeah, now with all your, and this is, 
we'll we'll kind of close with this. And I wish we we could have even more time, but okay. I want to be respectful. So in your case, you go through every day with all of this knowledge and all of these issues and all of this experience, and yet this is a very practical day-to-day -day thing that people worry about even when they know nothing, or especially when they know nothing. What's it like in your own experience dealing with your family, with phones, with kids? So here's the important thing to appreciate, right? I'm a white male in a senior level in my career, right? Who's out on social media and who's a semi-public figure. I'm not a victim of domestic violence who needs to make sure that I can't be found by my ex-spouse. I'm not a member of a marginalized group that maybe if my race is known means I'm not gonna get a loan. So we need to recognize that different people, different parts of the world, different parts of society, race, background, ethnicity, disability, come to it in different places. I'm not worried that my sexual orientation is gonna be used against me, right, as a straight white male. Someone else may not be out, may not be out to everybody. So we need to recognize that people have very valid differences and that what might be risky for someone isn't risky for me. So I can do lots of stuff and say, well, hey, I don't care about privacy. No, I'm in a privileged position where, you know, I can go ahead and, and do that. So everyone's gotta to come to it with sort of an appreciation that there's a very real need that someone else might need to be and that the systems and the tools need to let them be very different because of their preference or because of their risk, number one. But number two, there's a lot folks can do. And the first thing is, you know, pick up your phone, go to the settings, there's a button there that says privacy. Why are you sharing your location with 50 apps? All of the phones now, um, iOS, the iPhone, Android phones, they got a privacy setting. There's a location toggle there. Yeah, Google Maps might need it, but you know what? Most of those apps only need it while you're using the app. Is there any app that you're giving location like all the time? Well, maybe the one that's like tracking your steps, right? But boy, if there's a bunch of other apps like that flashlight app that's collecting your location 24 seven, well, guess what? Why? Because it's selling it. So go ahead and flip off that switch and take a look at the other permissions that you've given some of those apps. And again, they're free, which means they're making money on your data. That might be fair, but you've got, you've got some options to limit that. And you can just do a little self audit. And I, I, every time I look, I'm like 140 apps have access to my photos. Like, why did I say yes? Because I don't know. Flip, flip, flip. So it's easy to really reduce your footprint by just doing a little bit of, you know, 10 minutes of hygiene with your mobile phone. So go ahead and do it. Very good advice, Jules. And remember, remember, listeners, that when you feel down and alone and unwanted, just remember that there are thousands of companies competing for the information about your preference in lawnmowers. So this is this is a, this is, makes me feel good. I don't even want to buy a lawnmower. I'm never going to buy a lawnmower. It's one of the few things that I indulge myself in is to have gardeners take care of that shit because I don't want to have a lawnmower. But after our conversation today, all those companies are going to be competing. I'm going to see five ads, 10 ads tomorrow on Instagram. We'll, we'll be Toro lawnmowers and know all kinds of stuff. And I'm saying it now. I don't know. Is it, do I have to say it into the, this isn't even airing yet, 
but I'm just going to say it around my phone, and then tomorrow I'll get all the lawnmower ads. I know you're listening. I know you. I know you're listening to me. Anyway, Jules, thank you so much for coming on, man. Great to see you and to talk. Looking forward to listening to more of Truth Tastes Funny. Take care, Hush. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.